you know, you have that, I don't know if I can pay the salaries next month moment. And you have that many times. You know, Andrew and I co-signed loan at one point in order to keep the business going. You go through all of those things. You go through despair and you go through your high points. But what you have to do is get on and execute the plan. And that's what we did. And we believed it was going to work. And the plan worked. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. All right, guys, I got to give another shout out to a quick sponsor of the show, Chili Piper. Did you guys know that 60% of inbound leads don't convert to a meeting? And that you can double your inbound conversions by eliminating the waiting period between the form fill and the meeting? And so with Chili Piper, you can turn those leads into meetings instantly with intelligent rules that auto-qualify and route leads in real time. Also, you never let leads fall through the crack because they have a two-way sync with your CRM, which just helps to also give you clean attribution on those leads at the end of the day. So with Chili Piper, you have no more leaky funnel. Instead, you've got more leads, more meetings, and more pipeline. Start turning leads into meetings today with Chili Piper. Visit chilipiper.com slash leaders to learn more. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Ledge again. Really excited to welcome Gareth Jenner. He's the co-founder and CEO of Trust Stamp. Gareth, thanks for uh, coming out. would love if you would give an introduction of yourself and uh, your current business and, and projects, and then we'll dive in and see where we go. Thank you, Ledge. Uh, very excited to be here. So Trust Stamp is an AI company, and we really focus on two fairly narrow questions that we think are central to most of our lives, and that is, who are you? Do I trust you? We actually started out looking at the P2P and sharing economies six, seven years ago, when we had a convergence between online and real world. So people were meeting online and starting to transact in the real world. How do I know who you are? How do you know who I am? I'm not going to give you information to allow you to trust me because I don't trust you. And so we started to say this is a conundrum which is going to become greater as people transact more and more remotely. And so what we started to focus on was zero-knowledge proofs. But we quickly became aware that this was a B2B problem. It wasn't just a C2C or B2C problem. Companies are dealing with more and more people they have never met. The concept of the bank manager who would interview you for a loan has disappeared an awfully long time ago. In fact, many companies are dealing with people who don't exist. That's the biggest problem. It's called synthetic identity. And so we realized that this was growing, that the real consequences of it were only just starting to be understood. So we set out to build a company that would allow us to identify who you were. Our initial focus was on your face, because we all recognize each other by our face, and we have an identity document, and what will that always have? It'll have your face. You know, while in the forensic world we talk about fingerprints, 
Well, there is no way to actually confirm our fingerprints, but we've got a driver's license, we've got a passport, we've got something. And so we started out by saying, well, we'll start by knowing who you are by reference to a government-issued document, which has your face. But we also realized that while that would boom, and it really has in the last five to six years, I mean, let's face it, it's becoming ubiquitous, there'd also be concerns. While everybody says, I encrypt, how many data losses and hacks are there? In fact, in the last few years, over 3 billion sets of biometrics have been lost. That's 3 billion. That's not 3 billion people, of course. You can have multiple sets. In fact, one of the losses a number of years ago, which got a lot of attention, was the Office of Personnel Management, U.S. government, managed to lose the fingerprints of its operatives who had security clearances, believed to the Chinese government. So if they can't keep it secure, is that online retailer really a good guardian of your biometrics? You know, when you lose your password, what do you do? You change it. Um, probably won't change it often enough. If I have your biometrics, what do you do? You're no longer able to use them securely for the rest of your life. So we said, well, hang on, biometrics are really easy and they're really cool as a way of identifying myself, but people are going to get nervous about it. Secondly, any information that you give can be used for a purpose other than that which you give it. And data ownership, obviously, is something we're all concerned about. And so it was people are going to start getting concerned about what's my data used for. And last year, we saw a lot of that happening with concerns about surveillance using biometrics that have been gathered for other purposes. So two huge problems that we knew were going to arrive. We called it the biometric time bomb. So at the same time as we developed a biometric service, we worked out how to destroy it. So what we did was to say, how much of the biometric data can I destroy? How much cryptographic noise can I put in? And then encrypt it. Now, to be honest, the encryption is icing on the cake here because we have mathematical proofs that there's so little left, you cannot be recognized outside of the environment this was designed to be used in. So your biometric data is basically reduced to 128 bits, and it's a complete and absolute nonsense if you look at it. Letters, numbers, symbols, etc. And so what we created was something called the Irreversibly Transformed Identity Token, the IT2. And that's the heart of what Trust Stamp does. Now, what do you use it for? Well, one of the biggest credit card banks in America uses it to onboard high-value customers. They use it to let you back into your account when they've closed it because they fear an account takeover. And they use it to detect fraud, meaning this. You might have two driver's licenses in different states with different names, and they're real. So now you can sign up for two accounts, and it happens. That's how you create a synthetic identity. The IT2 says, I don't care. They are both the same person. Ledge is John. I don't care what the state says. Ledge is John. And so as well as letting the good guys into their account, we spot the bad guys, no matter how good they are at creating identities. And we kick them out. And in fact, the FBI then takes it a step further. So that's the one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, MasterCard International, where we're creating identities for people who have no identity. So people in underdeveloped countries, refugees, who have no way of asserting an identity, whether to get medical assistance for their child, to get aid, to qualify, 
for a microloan or anything else. And so there, we're creating from the beginning the identity. Those are the two ends of the spectrum of what we do. And so that end we call financial and societal inclusion. What we do for developed economies is make them more secure. So we say our mission is to provide secure acceleration of financial and societal inclusion. That's what Trust Stamp does today. It's fascinating, uh, you know, to go from idea stage to you know, execution around the world of such a abstract concept. And I, I, it makes sense. It reminds me of, I used to do some work around how would we authoritatively identify a device, you know, device fingerprinting in, in some kind of fashion there. And and I, I understand a little bit about what you're doing there. It also reminds me of this, like, almost as if you're seeding a, a random number generator, starting with somebody's identity and then making sure that it comes out with a unique you know, pattern at the end. It's a, a fingerprint of a fingerprint almost in, in that fashion. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a great description. In fact, one of the interesting things is that while we used facial, we also sit on top of some vendors who provide fingerprint and palm print. And when we looked at fingerprints, we realized that essentially it's the same system that was designed in Victorian England. I mean, absolutely absurd. And it works fine with an ink pad, but it doesn't really work well with a photograph. And so we devised a whole new way of doing fingerprints in a similar way to your speculation, which is we don't take the measurements of the fingerprint. We measure the fingerprints features against 100 other fingerprints chosen at random from a large sample set. And all we store is the difference between those. So we never store your fingerprint. If if that had been hacked by uh, by the Chinese government, the OPM would be fine. All you've got is measurements against 100 other fingerprints, and you don't know who they are. And so that's a revolutionary way which we patented uh, earlier this year, which changes the way fingerprints are saved. So it's all about abstraction, and it's all about creating something which is probabilistic as opposed to a simple measurement which is being recorded. That's the only way you can securely protect the original data. You don't keep it. You're a... Uh... I don't believe you're an applied mathematician, so you must surround yourself with uh, a whole <laughs> lot of people who think a lot about numbers and math and probabilities and prime numbers and all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So original ideas were largely mine, but I didn't have the mathematical ability to, to execute them. I just had this gut feel this could be done. We have a lot of smart people, as you say, a good number of PhDs in our company, a very significant number. And they usually take the ideas somewhere where I no longer really understand what's going on. Because the one <laughs> thing today, having said that, is we now have a situation where our, our AIs actually take what they work that they do to a point at which they no longer understand what's going on either. You just prove by testing what it does. So, yeah, I, I will tell you, I was making the point to someone recently. I think we've got about 17 patent filings currently. You know, if you looked at the first one or two, it was my co-founder and I. You look at then numbers three, four, five, and it was our ideas and then everybody else. And the more recent ones, we had no part in whatsoever except writing the check. Um, <laughs> we've now generated a team which is really bright and creative, and it's running with it. Talk about that, you know, building a team of, of you know, real, highly, insanely educated total geniuses that, I mean, you know, it's almost like, the level of complexity that you're able 
to design now and the combination of all those brains it's uh sort of like a human black box not unlike the <laughs> the ai there that can you know we don't really know what it does but we, we stick information in the front and it shoots out the back and, <laughs> and it looks correct so yeah so it's a good point because a lot of people would tell you you can't build a company the way we build a company and we're going to continue to build a company so we find talent wherever it is we don't make it come to us we don't have the arrogance to think it will necessarily physically come to us and so when we started we couldn't afford a lot of the brilliant machine learning talent there was in the US it just wasn't within our reach uh, the silicon valley companies were sort of snapping it up so we bought a machine learning company in poland where there were brilliant engineers poland is now a very hot property but at those times your know, salaries were much more reasonable but also what we did was offer everybody the chance to have equity and say yeah, and somewhere like Poland, that was relatively unusual. And I'm not talking options, I'm talking shares. And say, so you are going to own shares. Those first engineers, every single month, they own shares along with their salary. And so bright people were willing to join the team because they felt that they co-owned. We, the reason I'm in Malta is the Maltese government offered us funding to open a research and development center. And everyone said, you can't find the talent you need in Malta. Now, I have a passion for education and said, I disagree. And so we opened last August and we recruited young people uh, in the main, uh, straight out of university with undergraduate degrees, and we put them into an intense training program. And these were people who the big companies wouldn't have employed because they didn't yet have the death ready skills. We've gone from opening the office last August to there's about 40 people in the office at this point in Malta. And they are creating ideas. And of course, they come from a different perspective. So where do you jump now? And the answer is Africa. So Africa is a phenomenal opportunity in terms of the economic growth. But also, you have an awful lot of people who have genius level IQs, but don't have the opportunity. And so we've opened an office in Rwanda, uh, in Kigali, where Carnegie Mellon University has built its tech university for Africa. And what you have in Rwanda is students who are seeking scholarships because they're the brightest from 30 different countries who are taking master's level courses in AI and now cybersecurity and coming into Rwanda. So we just tapped into a whole new talent pool now, Carnegie Mellon University is sort of pre-filtered for us. Foundations have provided these people scholarships. Carnegie Mellon has put them into master's programs. We know they're incredibly talented, but they don't have an opportunity. So yeah, I opened that office two months ago. I think we're at 12 people today and gently building the office. So that's how our approach has been. Yeah, go out and find that talent. Go find the genius where, wherever they may be. And then create an environment they really want to work in. It's it's a fantastic story. I mean, I've heard pieces of this, people executing this. You seem to just have figured out how to scale this model, which is difficult. I've worked even on, you know, sort of localized or even single country apprentice and training programs. There's a, a significant burden of uh, the long tail benefits that, that come from financing that on the front end, you're not talking about a short runway there. <laughs> no. So one secret, which was that 
I took a sabbatical to go help turn the school around and ended up, it was supposed to be a year or two, falling in love with it. And we started a college, which grew into a university. And so I grew a passion for education. And really, we've implemented a lot of what I learned in the business. And, and the fact that you know, we, we would take students who didn't fit typical academic profiles and we would give them an opportunity because we felt that they would perform if they did. And that's what we've done in the business. So that, that's, that was a unique piece of experience to bring. You're right on the funding it part. One of the reasons we came to Malta was that Malta is very aggressive about trying to work out how to develop its economy in technology. And so Malta said, we will put on the table funding, and we will fund 70% of your costs of recruiting and training these engineers. Well, that mitigates your bet. Okay. Now, it's worked every single time, by the way, so far. We didn't expect it to. We told them 60 to 80% success rate. I pleasantly shocked it to 100% success rate. And we're delighted. But that's what's made it possible. Why this has become our fastest growing office. It's at zero to 40 in 11 months. And uh, I'm sure word gets out that an opportunity like that exists. That, I mean, that's a tremendous opportunity that simply just wouldn't have been there. So uh, talk about public-private partnership, like that, that's how it's supposed to work. So. Well, and we, we, from the beginning, we made sure we gave back. In fact, we gave before we received, so it wasn't even a back. And we engaged with the community, we engaged with the university, we funded um, educational initiatives, we pushed for the expansion of women in technology. And we did all of these things at the beginning, which meant that everybody was very willing to say, this is a, hey, they're a true partner. They're willing to do all of these things. We need to try and help them. Uh, so I think that helped us tremendously to to get the credibility we did as quickly as we did. Talk about some of your journey to get here. You know, it's certainly there's the you know ideas pop into your head and you kind of say, hey, this is going to be a thing and I should chase that. Uh, but I, I am big into understanding the foundation that went into that. I could see on your your history that you have tons of education that that you've invested in in yourself. But what was this? founder journey to get to this, you know, magnificent thing. And, and tell me some of the bruises and the bumps too, because this sounds like a fairy tale. So first of all, I have to confess it's an accident. <laughs> so I had, I had worked on, on a number of these ideas over a number of years. And I mentioned the time at which I was at the school. And when I was at the school, I mentored a number of students and became close to a number of students. And one that I then kept a relationship with when she went off to college and law school, asked me to engage in the interview process of somebody she thought wanted to be her husband. And she, she brought this young man along to dinner. And he had clearly researched me extremely well. And it was clear that he really wanted to impress me. And I was, I, I was impressed with that because I care about her. So I was impressed that he, uh, he felt enough. And then tactically, he was smart. He reached out a couple of days later and said, I need a business mentor. Will you be my business mentor? I promise not to take up too much time. I will buy lunch, breakfast, dinner, whatever it is you want at any given time. So I agreed. Now, zoom forward about a year. And um, my former student and now friend was going off to take an LLM. And so she was going to be away for a year. And they were getting married when she returned. 
So he came to me and said, I've always wanted to start a business. Look, I have no college today and I can live out of my car. I'm going to settle down and be a conservative employee somewhere for the rest of my life. I want one shot at it. Help me start a business. So I said, well, I'll take some IP that I have. In fact, I was about to file a patent. Look, it's not a business. I will teach you lean startup methodologies. We'll use this as a training tool, and you will use customer discovery tools. And yeah, you'll go through everything, IP. Um, and at the end of the year, you can decide you find yourself a real business or not. And so that started in the fall of... Um, so where are we now? Yeah, so that started... Uh, in the fall, and within three months, he was starting to get tremendous interest. So I took it along to an old friend uh, who I respected tremendously and said, look, uh, you know this young man, Andrew, he, he thinks this could be a business. What do you think? And he said, well, yes, but you know, synthetic identity fraud, I mean, you don't realize how big this is. If he will pursue that, I'll write the first check for him. I'll give him $100,000 to start a company, but you've got to give him a day a week. So I said, okay, I'll give him one of my weekend days. You give him the first check. He quit his job to start the company. Well, of course, within three months, the whole thing had absolutely exploded. And we had uh, garnered our first client before we had a product. We had a patent filing. We had a really lousy PowerPoint because I did it, and I'm really not good at PowerPoints. Um, we had a logo that I'd had somebody do on Fiverr for literally $5, and that's what we had. And we had our first client come along. Now, it took six months of due diligence before the contract was signed. But we had our first client came along who is still a major client today. And so I cannot tell you that we started through a conceived plan. I can tell you that within three to six months, we had said, here is where we're taking this. And in five years, we will sell it or it'll be public. And five years after we started it, it was public. And we did have a good conception of the stages along the way that we needed to go through. And we decided, a little like the investment in people, that we were prepared to focus on a small number of really big clients and really improve the product before taking it mass market. So this company was five years old before we really went to market. I mean, this year is really the growth. We had very big clients before that, but we, we focused and we were disciplined. And people said, no, no, you, you could have 10 times the valuation and the client list of 100 you know, small clients, but that wasn't the way we wanted to build a business. So we've been very deliberate about that. Yes, roller coaster, okay? You know, you have that, I don't know if I can pay the salaries next month moment. And you have that many times. You know, Andrew and I co-signed loan at one point in order to keep the business going. You go through all of those things. You go through despair and you go through your high points. But what you have to do is get on and execute the plan. And that's what we did. And we believed it was going to work. And the plan worked. Uh, now, you know, the most recent dangerous moment was we had decided we were going to do our first public raise. And it was supposed to take place in December of 2019. But because of um, SEC delays, it got put off till the spring. But in the meantime, we were growing the company and we decided not to slow growth. And so that was the point at which he and I co-signed a loan. Um, we continue to grow. We continue to bring people on board. We continue to invest in research and development. And COVID hit. And Everyone said, what are you doing? 
there's no way you can go raise seven million dollars uh, your size in the midst of COVID. It's just not doable. And we said, well, it sort of has to be because we're committed at this point. And I will tell you on our first day of doing a public raise under what's called Reg-A, so regulated crowdfunding, we brought a million dollars in. Um, and we were oversubscribed. We, we closed our 7 million with taking 2,700 shareholders. We had 12,500 people try to invest. Um, all during COVID. So you've got to persevere. You've got, you've got to believe you can do it. Um, you've got to put the energy into doing it. And you can't believe in no. It fits with, we have a company motto, well, an informal company motto. What it says is, if it isn't contrary to the laws of physics as we know them today, it is purely a question of time and resources. And we even stress today, because we're quite prepared to, to say, well, the laws of physics may be wrong um, because we're learning about them all the time. But nobody in the company is allowed to say anything's impossible. And that's what's made it happen. Uh, we believe. Today, we have 80-odd people who believe. Um, 80 people believing is a powerful force. Absolutely. That's it's fascinating. When you had the plan and you stuck to the plan, where, where did the initial plan and roadmap, you know, come from? Because I mean, at that point, there's, you know, two, three, four people, maybe around kitchen table, garage, you know, sort of, I mean, this isn't, I think that that, that discussion gets skipped so much. Like, where does a legitimate plan come from? And it probably isn't the way that you would think about plan way back when it was sort of just the ethereal sort of milestones in, in a shared brain. So we were helped a little bit. Because remember, when Andrew engaged with me, it was a learning exercise. And so we said, we are, I'm going to teach you Lean Startup, and we are going to follow all of the methodologies. We are going to test, test, test. We are going to find out what the customer wants, not what we believe the customer wants, etc. So that actually imposed a discipline for us that we might not otherwise have had as entrepreneurs. But you're right. They, I mean, from two co-founders, it went to four. Um, I think a good part of your story is that uh, one of the second generation co-founders, our CTO, he was with Google, and he got involved a few months into Andrew and I working on it back in those PowerPoint days. And he looked at it, uh, he came to a board meeting, actually, and said, you know, it's all really interesting, but it's, it's just hot air. There's nothing here. And I said, no, no, we, we are going to build a proof of concept and this is how much money and we're going to build it for this money on this date. And he went, yeah, right. He said, you know, if you actually do our quit Google, you never do it. And then we, we reached out to him and said, hey, can we send you the link to the uh, POC app? Because we built it. And he went, no, no, you mean it's like a prototype? I said, no, it works. Um, and he, he said, okay. I'm going to quit Google, um, and he was in, he was in the in the second generation, and so you know the, our CFO and CTO um, came on board. But we continue to execute a plan, and we do continue to try to. And, and now it, it is broader. We're a relatively flat organization. You know there are now more variables, and so we try to constantly work through all of the different variables that might take place. And we've got a lot of different people working through the variables, which, which makes it much stronger. 
you, know, you as as a, as as the co-founders, you can maintain the vision, but you really need to make sure that other people are contributing towards the planning, um, as well as the execution. And where did your passion for lean startup come from? Had you done other businesses? I mean, nope. so I'm I'm a student of that, and and I can tell you that I virtually never meet anyone that actually follows the thing. People all have the book. They don't go through the discipline. <laughs> um, you know, customer discovery is a complete joke in most instances. They'll say we're lean. They'll say we're agile. But I I rarely find anyone actually do the thing. <laughs> so. Well, I've got two nice stories on that. So first of all, I'd never heard of Lean Startup until when I was at the school. And it was, you know, I was president of the school. But I wasn't really directly engaged with students, but I did teach a class because I required that everybody, no matter what their position, taught a class. And I also started a technology club, which was a technology entrepreneurship club. And um, somebody said to me, you know, this is academic stuff. I mean, even though it's a club, you need structure. You can't just wander in there. So I said, hmm, let's have a look. Oh, okay, universities teach this Lean Startup thing. We'll use that as the structure. So I learned about Lean Startup. Um, with the students who I was teaching about Lean Startup. Um, and it made sense to me, okay? It, it just, the whole thing, you know, it, it is very well developed. But I got a nice zoom ahead on that one. And so late in 2019, I got invited on a trip, ironically, from the UK, um, to go to Silicon Valley to sit in one of Steve Blank's classes but more than that, to go to his house and, and visit with him. And I got to pitch Trust Stamp to Steve Blank. And Steve Blank said to me, you have a unicorn. He said, because what people don't realize is our business model is you pay us to build something for you. And we'll make a profit when we build it. But every time you use it, you pay us again. So every time the algorithms run, you pay us. He said, you've got these really, really big clients who are going to use your technology for years, if not decades. And you've got no cost. They're going to continue sending you money. He said, that's called an annuity. He said, therefore, your valuation will be an annuity. And he said, no VC is going to understand you. They're all going to want to value you based on your setup revenues, yeah, which might get you to break even, but that's all. But they're going to forget the annuity. So for me, that was a lovely closing loop where here is the guru of Lean Startup who, who got to hear about and take a look at uh, what we'd actually built using Lean Startup. <laughs> that's, that's a great story. Uh, I love that. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. The part of VCs will not understand that you're printing money. Uh, <laughs> well, you will be printing money. They've got to be patient. Yeah. They don't like being patient. <laughs> No, that's absolutely right. And uh, and the interesting thing, I, I love the phrasing of the, the annuity uh, because there are these fascinating stories like that in many businesses where it's it's not dissimilar to building a small book of business as a insurance rep. <laughs> I mean, you know, it just goes on forever and you have to understand that you are, or you're just simply stacking and it does not look like the hockey stick, but it does in fact look like an exponentially graded curve over a, a longer 
time frame. So and gap accounting means that you can't reflect it in any way whatsoever, which is, which is interesting. So you know, yeah. gap hides the value. The one place you can is with insurance companies, where they have a concept called embedded value, where you actually right. show the asset of the future receivable, the premiums less the cost of the insurance risk, but. The rest of the world is blind to it. So a company like yours is going to have an outrageous goodwill balance at one point or another. You're, you're exactly right. And so um, that was another one of the points with going public um, was we believe public shareholders uh, in a couple of years time will get to fully understand that and will then value the company accordingly. <laughs> That's fascinating. I, I love this. Um, just this theme of education taking you where you didn't even know you wanted to go and you know the the union of a life dedicated to education and ideas how did you you must have had a lot of ideas i imagine you're the kind of guy that might have a notebook full of of stuff like this uh, how did you choose the right one to explore in in your you know almost internship with your partner <laughs> <laughs> well, and like anybody else, you, know, you you don't necessarily nobody hears necessarily about the ideas that were great ideas but never went anywhere, and so that's that's absolutely true. And at the time, it was all about timing. Um, so Craigslist had had I think over 110 murders were in the press of people who'd met through Craigslist transactions. So it was it was in the press. It was sort of a hot topic. And it was sort of irritating me that there needed to be a better way of doing it. So honestly, it was that sense of timeliness. Now, as I said, my my investor friend who I went to then told us that synthetic identity was an immediate problem. And so if you that was a pivot, okay? We haven't given up on the P2P idea. We think it's incredibly important. In fact, a couple of the world's biggest P2P companies are talking to us. But we were willing, also willing to pivot, of course, the essence of lean startup. You know, customer discovery was... Here is a customer telling me, I don't need what it is you're talking about, but tell you what, I really need the following thing. So we pivoted to that. My original ideas were not the IT2. You know, the IT2 idea came two or three years into it. And we then realized that was the thing to focus on. So never believe your original idea is the ultimate and will be the one that uh, you'll end up running with. Such a valuable lesson. I see... Uh, so many founders who go into their bunker with their original idea and just build and build and build. And the problem with our thing must be that we don't have enough features. Uh, <laughs> and nobody ever asked the customer, any customer, what, <laughs> what they actually wanted when, when they have that conversation. There's so much telling. There's not enough asking. I think we do entrepreneurs a disservice by dramatically underfunding the customer discovery ramp, that that time that it takes to do that right. The only times I'm really able to find people that can have that discussion in a meaningful way will say, you know, I I had an exit, I had a, you know, a liquidity event, and I was going on to number two or number three, and I was able to self-finance a year of trying to figure out which of my 10 different things was the right one to go after. And I don't know how I hope that we can find a way to pre-fund exactly what you did, you know, so that almost internship type of research experience, because that's where the best stuff will come from. Yeah, I, I would do, say two things. One is incubator programs. So we have done, my goodness, I have lost count. We have done maybe nine accelerators. 
we have done some of the finest in the world. And we do them because we go looking for ideas and customer discovery. And they're incredibly valuable because you get to sit down with C-levels, EVPs and corporations you'd never get an appointment with. It is well worth the time put into the accelerator because they get you the opportunity for that customer discovery. So on the corporate level, those have been phenomenal. In fact, we're now working with the government of Malta and one of the world's largest program, accelerator programs to start one in Malta in order to give back from the experience we have because we think it's important. But there was one other sneaky little tool which was incredibly valuable called Google Surveys. So anybody can set up a survey through Google. And you can pick your demographic, you can pick your age group, you can pick all of the different things that you want to go into the survey. If it's a one-question survey, it is ridiculously cheap. Like in the tens of dollars will get you five to 10,000 responses, okay? Once you've got more than one question, it gets really expensive. So the trick is, questions are limited, but answers aren't. So how do you have a one-question survey where really you've got 10 different answers, all of which are 10 different questions. And so that's what we became really good at doing. And so we survey tens and tens of thousands of people over a short period of time, spending just hundreds of dollars. Um, a real great entrepreneur hack tool, because we had hard data. And of course, it produced beautiful graphs and breakdowns. And so you could be in front of a VC and they'd say, yes, but how many women between the age of 30 and 35? And you say, I can tell you exactly how many women between the age of 30 and 35 would be willing to use this. And so it was really funny because one of the earlier accelerator programs had a situation where they would fund customer discovery. And they employed an agency and paid them a significant sum to do customer discovery. And we gave the agency everything we already had. And they were shocked and said, we have never seen this much data from a company at your stage. I mean, how did you fund it? And I said, well, you know, it was about three, four hundred dollars. Um, and they had no idea that Google surveys existed or that you could do it in this way. So um, a good customer discovery hack if you're dealing with consumers. But even if you're B2B, OK, it's valuable because you go to your B2B customer and so you can actually survey, let's suppose you wanted to sell something to Uber, you can put a survey out where the first screening is, do you use Uber? And then you can ask them questions. If they don't say they use Uber, you don't pay, they go away. So now you go to Uber and say, I have surveyed 50,000 of your customers and your 50,000 customers say they would use my product if you were to put it into the car. I mean, isn't that powerful? Yeah. That's a pretty good tool. I have to say, I've never heard anybody do this either. So have you made any use of just, just you saying that makes me wonder, have you made any use of mechanical Turk? It seems like this is a thing that you guys might be into. So, so Amazon kicked us off the mechanical Turk multiple times. Um, <laughs> we, we, we always felt we were within, within the rules. So we have just built one. And so, so this is an interesting story. And so the Maltese government approached us about four or five months ago. And they wanted to provide education for the prisoners in the Maltese prison. Um, but they wanted to also give them a chance to earn some pocket money. And so they came to us as a pro bono project saying, hey, come up with an idea. And so we said there's a huge need for data tagging. 
And by data tagging, I mean the simplistic stuff for supermarkets, banana, orange, apple. This isn't about your personal data. Okay, at the moment, it gets sent out to underdeveloped countries. It's usually three intermediaries between the person at the other end gets very little. We said, we'll build you a we'll build you a mechanical Turk. And so the prisoners can sign on and they can do data tagging. But for every eight hours that they do data tagging, they have to complete then an hour of education in order to be allowed to continue to do any more data tagging. They get paid for the data tagging. There's no profit in it. They get anything that's earned on the Mechanical Turk. But now they have to do some education to move on. And that could be anywhere from fifth grade math to, for the younger ones, actually earning certifications for when they leave prison. So um, one of the early projects for our developers in Malta, who we trained from scratch, was building that Mechanical Turk for the prison system. And it'll be announced in two or three weeks' time. Uh, so it's, it's a virtuous circle. These, these prisoners will get to earn not very much, but enough that they can buy some candy, etc. at the store. But they sort of get forced into getting an education. It's <laughs> fascinating. Well, I'm glad I asked the question. <laughs> well, I, I, mean, I could do this all day. You are a fascinating guy. I'll give you two minutes. Put on your futurist hat. And, uh, you know, before we, we wrap and uh, just what's what's the next couple of years? look like? I, uh, I want to hear your predictions. Yeah, absolutely. So Africa, uh, I mentioned, most people in the world do not realize that Africa or most countries in Africa over 40 entered into a free trade zone in January, like the European Union for Africa. That will be a three trillion economy. Okay. There's now the opportunity for the first time ever to start a business in one country in Africa and run it in all of them, together with the fact they'll have a digital currency for business transactions by 2023. So you're going to see huge economic growth in Africa, which is a really good thing, because obviously there are an awful lot of people at a poverty level there who, who need to be helped to move forward. But if you look more globally on that, there are still something like 2 billion people who have no identity or can't assert an identity. If you were to give them a, something as simple as an identity, okay? So in our case, a digital identity, it's at $1 trillion per year in economic growth. So one of the things COVID is going to do is to make everybody more comfortable uh, with digital transactions, with remote transactions, and with the fact we need to identify, whether it's a COVID passport, whatever it is, we need to be able to identify ourselves. And I believe that's going to have a knock-on effect for the global economy, and it's going to have the biggest effect on those who need it most, i.e. those at the bottom of the economic pile. You might have answered this question before. That was, uh, no, <laughs> that was really, I, no, I haven't. Really fascinating. Well, uh, I, I'm amazed by this. This has been one of my most favorite conversations. So thank you so much for uh, spending the time. I, I'm sure you're going to have the audience brains ticking out there. If anybody wants to uh, reach out to you or, or make a connection, what's the best way to do that? So if they go to the webpage, they can email. So that's trustamp.ai. They can email me directly from the webpage. Very open, excited to hear their ideas. I will tell you one of our retail shareholders sends me an idea every single day. Um, he spends more time <laughs> thinking about the business than anyone else. Ideas come from all over the place. Would love to engage. <laughs> Thank you, Gareth. It's been a fascinating conversation. I appreciate you coming out. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. 
If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.